Hebrews chapter 6. We'll consider verses 9 through 12 as we continue along, but I'm going to read up to verse 19 that we might get the context better and see some of the matters which are about to we're about to uh, come into in upcoming weeks that they would inform us even though we're not hearing preaching on it yet. So Hebrews chapter 6 verse 9. Please give your attention to the reading of God's holy word. These are the very words of God. Let us receive them as they are indeed the word of God. But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation, though we thus speak. For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, and that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. And we desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end, that ye be not slothful, but followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. For when God made promise to Abraham, because he could swear by no greater, he swear by himself, saying, Surely blessing I will bless thee, and multiplying I will multiply thee. And so after he had patiently endured, he obtained the promise. For men verily swear by the greater, and an oath for confirmation is to them an end of all strife, wherein God, willing more abundantly to show unto the heirs of promise the immutability of his counsel, confirmed it by an oath, that by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us which hope we have as an anchor of the soul, both sure and steadfast, and which entereth into that within the veil. I'll finish with verse 20. Whither the forerunner is for us entered, even Jesus, made an high priest forever, after the order of Melchizedek. Amen. May God bless the reading of his word. Let's pray. O Lord our God, we come to the preaching of your holy word, and we pray, Father, that your Holy Spirit would grab hold of the preacher that the preacher would preach the truth, that the preacher would preach what is right in the eyes of God, and that you would keep the preacher from error, and that the counsel which would come now would be the very counsel of God to this congregation. Would you pray, Father, that the people of God here would also receive the Spirit of the Lord, that the Spirit of God would show them the truth of what is preached, and where the things that the preacher says are not true, which we pray would not happen tonight, that the Spirit of the Lord would give them discernment to know what is truly right in the sight of God. O Father, we pray this to the glory of Christ. And so we pray unto me, who am less than the least of all saints, that grace would be given, that I should preach among your congregation the unsearchable riches of Christ. For we ask this in the name of Jesus. Amen. You may be familiar with the philosopher Blaise Pascal. He had what is called Pascal's wager, that when it comes to having faith in God or not, the odds are better that you should believe than not, and so you should believe in God. He said, if atheism is right and God does not exist, you, like all, will just die and decompose, and that's the end of the story. But if God does exist and you choose poorly, and you don't choose God, right, then you will go to hell. And he says, if you choose God, then it is best because the worst thing that happens is you die like everybody else. And if God is not uh, uh, true, then you go into the ground and that's the end of you. But if God is real, instead of going to hell, you go to heaven. In other words, he says there's no downside to faith in God, but there is a downside to atheism. So you should choose to have faith. Beloved, that is not the faith of the Bible. That is a damnable thing. You cannot call faith like that, that is made on conjecture, saving faith at all. True faith is not conjecture. It is not probability that some kind of God might exist. But instead, true faith is based on the revelation of the true living God of the Holy Scripture. Friends, true faith, you have to get this right because I have run into a lot of Christians who are like this, who say, well, I just believe. That's just, I just believe because what else is there for me? That's not true faith. True faith is no wager. 
It's not that I have simply chosen better odds than the unbeliever. But instead, true faith can say, I know Jesus Christ lives. And I know Jesus Christ is at God's right hand. True faith can say, I know that my sins are forgiven for sure. True faith can say, I am headed where Jesus is. True faith can say, I know when I die. As for me, I will behold thy face in righteousness. I shall be satisfied when I awake with thy likeness. Psalm seventeen fifteen. Tonight, you and I must lay hold of that truth. We must put away conjecture and wishful thinking that God is just the best alternative. Because even the unbeliever will, will, will critique uh, Pascal's wager in this way. What if you have chosen the wrong God? The God of the Muslims cannot save. The God of the Mormons cannot save. Only the true God of the Bible can save. And if you have faith in the true God, then you can know assuredly that you are saved. That you can possess a sure, full assurance of hope if you are a believer. And if you're not believers, tonight I pray you would believe the sure promise of God concerning eternal life in Jesus Christ. It is a sure thing. So we'll consider our theme of a full assurance of our hope under three headings. First is the, uh, the imperative, possess a full assurance of hope. Second is to find your security in the promises of God. And third, you are to be diligent to make your election sure. First, possess a full assurance of hope. Last week, we saw the apostle warn us gravely against apostasy. That was a heavy text. You might remember that. There's a heavy warning there. It's meant to cause us to examine ourselves whether we are truly in the faith, if Christ is truly in us. And the apostle warned the Hebrews to keep them from falling away from Jesus Christ and turning to what was uh, being created then, this other religion called Judaism. But Paul, he says here that he thought better things of them. And as a good minister, he encourages and exhorts them. He said in verse 9, But beloved, we are persuaded better things of you and things that accompany salvation. He was persuaded, though he was uh, 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 burdened to warn them against falling away from the Lord. He said he was persuaded better things of them. And he encourages here an examination of their graces. This is a common pattern for self-examination. To first look at our deficiencies as we considered them last week, but then to consider the graces that Christ may have worked in us. Are there signs of grace in me? Are there things that accompany salvation? Those are areas where we can find assurance of God's work in us. And so he was assured, he was persuaded by an examination of their life that they were not reprobate. But let us, before we get to that, and we'll consider that uh, in another heading, let us consider a wonderful truth there from the Word of God. You can be assured of your salvation. You can be assured of your salvation. And it was not some special apostolic revelation to Paul, right? Like the Lord Jesus Christ revealed to Paul specially that these Hebrews were elect. He was persuaded by their graces, their manner of life, and their love for the brethren. I'll consider, as I said, the, the graces discovered in them later tonight. But first, embrace the truth. Without special revelation, you can be assured, I mean special revelation, unique revelation concerning your life, you can be assured in this life that you are saved. That is contrary to the Roman Catholic uh, Church's doctrine. Historically, assurance of salvation was a fundamental doctrine of the Re Reformation. But Rome's Council of Trent in 1547 responded to the Reformers and said, and this is what they say. This is not what the Bible says. They say, No one can know with the certainty of faith, which cannot be subject to error, that he has obtained the grace of God. That's on justification. First decree, chapter 9. You can look it up in the Council of Trent. But the Reformers said, You can infallibly be assured in this life, child of God, that you are saved. But the Pope wants to leave you hanging with no assurance that Christ loves you. Why is that? 
You think of this historically. They want to spur you on to purchase indulgences, to do their prescribed works, to go to their confessionals and observe the blasphemous mass and lure you away from Jesus Christ. But if the Pope says you cannot have certainty, what does God say? You already heard Paul in verse 9. He was persuaded of the spiritual state of grace of the Hebrews. Unless you think that was some insight just for the Hebrews, in verse 11 he wrote, We desire that every one of you do show the same diligence to the full assurance of hope unto the end. The full assurance of hope. What a wonderful phrase that is. So here is one witness then to the truth of assurance. Are there others? Yes. What did Peter write in 2 Peter 1.10? That you are to make your calling and election sure. Sure. That is your duty then, contrary to the Pope, to make sure that you are saved. So Peter is a second witness. How about a third? How about John? 1 John 5.13, These things have I written unto you that believe on the name of the Son of God that ye may know that ye have eternal life. Beloved, God's word says you can be absolutely assured in this life that you are saved. And we praise God for it. Who will you believe then? Are you going to believe God who says attain the full assurance of hope? Or are you going to uh, believe... And he also says, and I'll just bring out some of those witnesses again, that ye may know that ye have eternal life, who says, make your calling and election sure. Are you going to believe God who says those things? Or the Pope who says, you cannot know with certainty. So, you can have assurance of your standing in the grace of God. While that is so, you must make sure that your assurance is not presumption. That's the opposite ditch that you can fall into, which is presumption. To avoid being, as we heard last week, the almost Christian from the earlier part of the text. And that's the balance here, isn't it? The beautiful balance of Hebrews chapter 6. Avoid presumption, but also gain assurance. You have to look at this chapter holistically. Uh, boys and girls, as, as you consider your faith in the Lord, what you have to do is you have to have grounds. Grounds for having assurance of salvation. You need to ask yourself this. On what basis can I say I am certainly saved? You have to know the answer. On what basis can I say I know for sure I am going to heaven? Because you know this. All kinds of hypocrites and unbelievers have vainly imagined that they are in a good standing with God. But they are not. You ask them, why do you assuredly say you are saved? Why are you going to heaven? One kind of person might say, and this often happens in Christian circles, one kind of person might say, well, a minister led me through a prayer once. I prayed that I was a sinner and I needed Jesus. And he told me then, you are going to heaven. And that's why I'm going to heaven, because I prayed a prayer once. Another person might say, well, I've been raised a Christian. And boys and girls, you need to pay attention to this. I was raised a Christian and I was baptized. So surely I am accepted of God. Another person might say, well, I try my best. I try my best to be good. Surely God must see something in that and keep the commandments of God as best as I can. So surely I am accepted of God. Not one of those people have an actual grounds for assurance of salvation. One person has put their hope in a prayer. One person has put their hope in a baptism. One person puts their hope in themselves hearing not what the Bible has to say, that is, there is none good, not one. Many of these people, they don't darken the door of a church. They've never had a thought of God. They don't have a desire to live a life separated unto God. They do not love and adore Jesus Christ as the woman did this morning. They're never spurred on to good works done in the name of God out of gratitude. But worst of all, they don't even know what the promises of God are when it comes to salvation, what the grounds of salvation are. They are presumptuous men and women with a vain hope and not a biblical one. Tonight, that must not be you. You must understand where hope is rooted. Never looking to your prayers, never looking to your own works, never looking to your upbringing, boys and girls. Otherwise, you will either be presumptuous and then too late in the next life realize you are lost. Or you'll come to realize how flimsy your hope is. As you look on your life 
And you say, how could God accept me, a sinner? And then you will despair. No, you must find your assurance in the ironclad promises of God in Christ, and you must embrace them through faith and patience. And that's going to be our second heading then. So if we first understood that you can have assurance, second, we are to find your security in God's promises. So verse 12 says, you must be followers of them who through faith and patience inherit the promises. And the promises of God and the covenant he has made will form the backbone of the remainder of the text. And this is where we find the foundation of our assurance, the promises of God, and how neglected they are by us, his people. Your consolation, believer, in this life is to know what God promises he will surely keep. That is where your assurance is. The root of assurance is that truth, that whatever God promises, he will keep. You need to embrace that truth. You need to embrace it and hold fast to the promises of God, child of God. Consider verse 18. That by two immutable things in which it was impossible for God to lie, we might have a strong consolation who have fled for refuge to lay hold upon the hope set before us. We'll consider that more detail next time. But you have to hear where your assurance is. The impossibility that God can lie. Boys and girls, sometimes we ask you, is there anything God cannot do? Is there anything that God cannot do? And what's the temptation you want to say? You want to say, God can do anything. God can do everything, right? That's the temptation. But it's not the truth. It's not the truth. There are things God cannot do. And we praise the Lord for that. God cannot lie. God cannot lie. It is impossible for God to lie, for he is holy and cannot sin. By the way, and we'll maybe another time, talk about situational ethics then. That should tell you there's never a reason for you to lie about anything. Because it is impossible for God to lie, it is impossible for Jesus to lie, and you must be as your Savior. There is no reason to ever lie. Children, there is no place for situational ethics in your life. And that is a good application of the truth. It is impossible for God to lie. That said, he says, because of that, you have a strong consolation if you lay hold of the hope set before you. That is your hope, if your hope is in the promises of God, is not conjecture then or wishful thinking. They are based on the promises of God and that is why you can have any assurance, friends, because of God and not of your doing. Next time you're going to hear he has made an oath to secure his promises. And because of our hope in God's promise and not our hope in ourselves, verse 19 calls this hope an anchor for your soul. It's like seafaring imagery, isn't it? Your soul is anchored and moored, kept from being tossed out to sea and lost when all the tempests and storms come into your life, in all the trials and uh, temptations, if you are anchored to God's promises by faith, you have to realize that this is one of the reasons why the apostle was so frustrated at the end of chapter 5. They did not know the promises of God, and that threatened to unmoor them from Christ. And so the apostle exhorts them, follow those who through faith and patience Inherit the promises. Now, in context, he is using Abraham here as an example. A man of faith and patience to follow or imitate when it comes to the promises of God. You know, a man of faith like Abraham, he shows us two things. One, the nature of God's promise and what faith in the promises of God look like. Though his wife was barren, God gave him a promise in Genesis 15.5. And he brought him forth abroad and said, Look now toward heaven and tell the stars if thou be able to number them. And he said unto him, So shall thy seed be. What an outlandish promise this is from God. And it would be outlandish if it didn't come from God who promised it. His wife was barren. And you are telling me, God, that my offspring will be as the, the stars in heaven. But the nature of Abraham's faith was found in the next verse in Genesis 15, 6, which says, And he believed in the Lord, 
and he counted it to him for righteousness. Which is the root of the gospel promise, isn't it? Believing the promise of God is what gives us the righteousness of Christ. And later in Genesis twenty-two eighteen, another promise given to Abraham by God, in thy seed shall all the nations of the earth be blessed. And who is that seed? Jesus Christ. Now to Abraham and his seed were the promises made. He saith not, and to seeds as of many, but as of one, and to thy seed, which is Christ, Galatians 3.16. And what did Jesus say concerning Abraham's faith? Abraham rejoiced to see my day and was glad. John 8. Abraham, see, this is where faith in the promises of God come in. Abraham saw what was afar off by faith. He saw in his son Isaac a type of the Redeemer to come as he offered him on the altar, accounting that God was able to raise him up even from the dead, from whence also he received him in a figure, Hebrews eleven nineteen. Abraham believed great promises that were impossible to believe outside the gift of faith. And we find that God was vindicated in those promises, uh, wasn't he? It's impossible for him to lie. He has given us Jesus Christ to redeem us, as he promised to Abraham, to bless the nations. He told Abraham, in your seed, all the nations will be blessed. Where are we today? We are in Texas. This nation has been blessed through the preaching of the gospel. We are here as an evidence of the truth and impossibility of God to lie to Abraham. The promises of God are always vindicated. And because of Jesus, right, Abraham's descendants are unable to be numbered. Even this day, millions of people have called on the name of the Lord. It is impossible for God to lie. No matter how outlandish the promise seems, friends, God will do it. And how did he live by faith and patience in the promise? You have to get back to Abraham, right? Abraham's life was not easy to live in light of the promise. He had to leave his home. His family, he had to endure trials and afflictions, but he did so patiently, though imperfectly, and he endured believing in God. And so faith in the promise of God then produces endurance and perseverance, a constancy with God, a believing God continually, patience. Even Jesus demonstrated this, right? Uh, Why does he go to the cross? For the joy that was set before him. Right? He endures, he endures, he despises the shame and endures the cross because there was joy set before him, promised by God, and so he endures with patience. So, we see Abraham received those promises, even not in that life, but he did. And so you have to ask then, as we think back on assurance, what promises are you holding on to by faith? Right? If there is assurance of our salvation and it is found in the promises of God, Do you know the promises of God to you that promise to you salvation? Where would you go? Maybe God is asking you, child of God, what promise do you cling on to? What promise gives you assurance of salvation? How about John 3, 36? He that believeth on the Son hath everlasting life. Is that not a promise from God? It is impossible for God to lie. Do you believe that? Do you believe that concerning yourself? Do you believe that as I believe, right, on the Son of God, I have everlasting life? Do you see that that is a promise and that is where assurance is found? I believe what God says and so then I am assured that I am saved. Because my, my, my faith is not in a prayer I made, but my faith is in this promise God has made. That whoever believes on the Son has everlasting life. How about Matthew 24, 13 then, as you think on more promises? He that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. Do you believe that? That if you endure to the end, you will be saved. And that that means that you are called to endure to the end and stay away from apostasy in order to be saved. There are other promises that, that maybe are hard for you to hold on to, but you must. And this is broader than salvation. How about Hebrews 13.5? I will never leave thee nor forsake thee. Do you hold on to that promise? Do you believe that it was impossible for God to lie when he gave it to you? A promise that no matter what the trial, to those who believe, they are not forsaken. To believe that promise is to endure. What of 1 Timothy 1.15? 
as we consider it this morning, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners. That is a promise from God. A promise that even the chief of sinners can be saved from Jesus, by Jesus. What a grand promise that is for you who admit you are unholy. As that sinful woman this morning, or even the apostle who brought this text to us almost 2,000 years ago, how often do you cling to this promise? I will testify to you. I often have to cling to that promise. That as I see my sin, right? What is the glory of it, right? It is that as I see my sin, I connect it to that text and I say, no, the promise of God is he saves sinners in Christ. He doesn't, he hasn't come to save the righteous. Jesus promised that too. He said, I'm not come to, to save the righteous. And what about with it as well? Then as we think of the end of our faith, John 14, 2 through 3. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. That's a promise from God. It is impossible for him to lie. Jesus prepares a place for us to dwell with him and we will be with him. And he says, where I am, there ye may be also. How often is that promise near and dear to you? See, this is the end of your salvation, isn't it? It's not even justification. Justification is a means to this end that you will be with the Lord forever. And he has promised that to you. Or what of Romans 8.28, now child of God, all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to his purpose. Have you ever thought that that is a promise from God? Is it promising you an easy life? See, you have to understand the promise. The promise is not that you have an easy life, but that everything, trials, temptations, all things, difficulties, they all work together for good if you are in Christ. And that is a promise from God, and God cannot lie. And so our faith is in the promise of God. My faith isn't that I will endure because I am going to be strong today. I am going to endure because Jesus Christ has promised it to me. That's where assurance is found. That is what we believe in precious promises. Or what about then in view of that 2 Corinthians 4.17? For our light affliction, which is but for a moment, worketh for us a far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. A promise from God. This is where our assurance is. Look at this. You are promised a life of affliction. But it is called light and it works in your life what is going to be the end, the exceeding, far more exceeding and eternal weight of glory. Or what of this promise, 1 Thessalonians 5.23, the very God of peace sanctify you holy. A promise that God will sanctify you holy. He will not leave you in sin and misery. Oh, what a promise that is. No wonder Peter was moved by the Holy Ghost to write this, whereby are given unto us exceeding great and precious promises. 2 Peter 1.4. Exceeding great and precious promises. This is where your faith has to be, friends. In the promises of God. You have to be rooted in them by faith to have assurance. You see, the hypocrite, the false professor, they don't think on the promises of God for assurance, do they? They do not hold fast. And sometimes that's all we can do, right, by faith, is to hold fast for dear life in what God has promised. But are you doing that, beloved? Is that where you are? Do you put the full force and hope of your soul to find rest in the promises of God in Jesus Christ? You know, the more I grow in the faith, beloved, the more I find myself discovering, wanting to discover these great and exceeding precious promises from God. Because there is no hope. There's no hope in this very sorry wretch of a man enduring in himself. I cannot trust in the promises of politicians and princes. My soul's sole hope is the promises of God that are given to me in this book. Maybe what you ought to do is create an index card or a digital notebook these days with all the promises of God that you find. 
Memorize them, keep them close to your heart, or store them somewhere for access. So especially when you have need of them and your assurance is shaken, you can anchor your soul in God as you are tossed to and fro by trials and temptations. And let me say, you will be overwhelmed, utterly overwhelmed, if you start to write down and discover all the promises of God. You know, as I started just even thinking of a a representative sample set, as I gave you a few just now, I, I had to stop because this would be hours long as a sermon. If you would know and discover the promises of God, time would fail us to go through them all. There are so many precious promises in the Word of God. And what do you know then? Right? You might say, well, I thought I was to have faith in Jesus Christ. Now you're saying have faith in the promises. Well, to put your faith in the promises of God is simply an expression of your faith in Jesus Christ. Right? For all the promises of God in him, that is Jesus, are yea, and in him, amen, unto the glory of God by us. 2 Corinthians 1.20 All these promises that I have mentioned tonight, they're all secured by our precious Savior, Jesus Christ. And to have faith in the promises then is to have faith in Jesus Christ who secured them all, who purchased them all on his cross at Calvary. And in him, you have them all. So you have need of faith in God's promise as Abraham had to be assured. You are to walk by faith in the promise and not by sight. You know, and you think about this, these promises, right? They're called exceedingly great and precious promises. They're not just one promise. They are a multitude of promises, right? Here's another one, right? Here's something that I have heard many of you, even in this congregation, are often troubled by the things that are going on in the world. And it seems like the enemies of God are winning, right? Well, what do you have to do? You have to not walk by sight in what you're seeing. You have to walk by faith in a promise like this. Yea, all kings shall fall down before him. All nations shall serve him. Psalm 72, 11. Faith gives you, we'll get to that, Lord willing, one day in Hebrews chapter 11, 1, that faith is the substance of things hoped for, the evidence of things not seen. See, faith gives you substance to a promise before it is granted. See, I, I believe by faith that all the nations of the world will serve the Lord Jesus Christ. I believe by faith, even though I'm not in heaven yet, I am a possessor of heaven because I have faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. Yeah, it's just hope. Uh, you know, we, we speak of hope in the wrong way today. The world has influenced what hope is to the Christian. Hope is something sure in the Bible. And it's not just a, a wishful hope, as the world does uh, says uh, hope is. Instead, it is a sure thing. It's like an inheritance you know you're going to get. And so faith gives a substance uh, to the things that are hoped for. Just as Abraham, right? Uh, Jesus said, Abraham rejoiced to see my day. In other words, Abraham knew he possessed Christ, even though he never lived to see him. And that means, as the text says, that the fruit of faith in the promises of God is patience. That is why they're connected. Through faith and patience, you have assurance. We need patience for at least three reasons, probably a lot more, but let me give you a few. First is, The promises of God seem very far away from us, don't they? Scoffers ask Peter in 2 Peter 3, 4, where is the promise of his coming, speaking of Jesus? But you think about Abraham. How far off was the promise to Abraham? Very far off. And yet, the promise was vindicated when Jesus comes, isn't it? We need patience. One of the problems today is a kind of instant gratification culture we have. And this is going to make patience a lot more difficult for you, believer. Uh, Ingrained in you in this time is I must have what I want now. Of course, this is where the idea of cheap and, and easy credit comes from, right? Like I'm going to buy what I want when I want it. Or I, now I can watch what I want when I want it. Uh, parents, you need to deny your children this kind of instant gratification. If you train them to have what they want when they want it, they will have a hard time patiently enduring in the promises of God. But patience in God's promises is cultivated when you know that what he has promised, he will accomplish. So you can be patient and endure until you possess the promise. You think of Abraham, right? How he expressed his patience. His wife dies. 
And he buries her where? In the promised land, right? He was patient. She will be resurrected in the land of promise, and he will be too. Patience. Second, we must patiently undergo trials and temptations. You know, there will be huge swaths of our life which seem to go contrary to the promises of God, where you feel with Jacob, all these things are against me. But we must patiently endure remembering that what man meant for evil, God meant for good. That all things work for my good. You need patience, friends. Or you must be patient as well under temptations to sin. You have to ask, do I really believe the promises of God? This often comes to us, right, where you're at a crossroads, when it comes to where it seems like to sin will give you something that you need in this life. But to follow the path of righteousness would be costly to you. And so you have to remember the promises of God in that time, and you must resolve not to sin. You have to ask yourself, will I follow Jesus' commandments when it is costly? And be patient. Third, just the fact that he mentions you have need of patience, that's what he says, shows that you are impatient by nature. That's something to mortify in you. I would venture to guess most of us have greater need of patience. In chapter 10, he will speak of your need for patience in verses 36 to 39. For ye have need of patience, that after ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. Listen to that. After ye have done the will of God, ye might receive the promise. For yet a little while, and he that shall come will come and will not tarry. Now the just shall live by faith. But if any man draw back, my soul shall have no pleasure in him. But we are not of them who draw back unto perdition, but of them that believe to the saving of the soul. And so, he says here, you have to be imitators of them who inherit the promises, believer. You need to remember what Hebrews 11 teaches you, right? Men like Abraham who endured. You need to stop thinking, in other words. This is something that plagues us. I've noticed it in my own life, but I've also noticed it in the counseling room. All of us in some way start to think our life is uniquely difficult. Nobody else has it like I do. My, my lot in life is just so much worse and so much different than any other person. You hear it from all kinds of people, and it's almost like, well, if I could get all of you in the same room and you can talk about how nobody else has it so bad, I think you would shame each other. But you recall Moses, Joseph, Abraham, Rahab, Mary, and the women who received their dead from Hebrews 11. And you compare yourself to them. And you have to have their faith and patience in the promise of God, and you will gain assurance, friends. But he says, even in this, you are not to be slothful, but diligent. And so, to gain assurance, you must be diligent. And that's what we consider in our last heading. Diligently make your election sure. So we are to be rooted in God's promises through faith and with patience, but then if saving faith has taken root in me and I believe the promises of God, we would expect there to be evidences of it in my life. That The apostle points out the fruit of salvation here, not as the ground of their assurance, but rather an evidence of their faith. The ground of their assurance is the promise of God, and the fact that we believe the promise of God is demonstrated by evidences of our faith. These are the things the apostle writes of in verse 9, the things that accompany salvation. Mentioned in verse 10, for God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed toward his name, in that ye have ministered to the saints and do minister. So the Hebrews expressed their trust in the promises of God and their saving faith by ministering to the saints. That is an expression of their love for God and love for neighbor. The, the, that saving faith had taken hold of them. In chapter 10, verse 34 through 35, we hear of their ministry towards the saints and the Apostle Paul in particular. For ye had compassion of me in my bonds and took joyfully the spoiling of your goods, knowing in yourselves that ye have in heaven a better and an enduring substance. Cast not away, therefore, your confidence, which hath great recompense of reward. You see, love for the brethren... And service to them is a marker of salvation. It gives you assurance if this is yours. First John 3.14 says, We know 
that we have passed from death unto life because we love the brethren. This is a marker of salvation, friends. This is not us trying to earn merit with the Almighty, not to earn our salvation. No, this is the natural fruit of saving faith, that we believe in the promises of God, and saving faith is in us. This is what results. We love the brethren. And so, as you see these evidences of faith here, what we have to understand from the text is that believer is called to be diligent to cultivate the fruit of saving faith. The believer is not to be slothful, as the text says, but is to exercise saving faith as it works in their heart and out into their life. In other words, our faith is not a kind of let go and let God kind of faith. This is the problem with so many men. We are to be diligent and earnest in our faith. And this is where so many of us go wrong. This is an expression of our love, joy, and gratitude as we heard this morning for possessing exceeding great and precious promises that we make our lives a living sacrifice for God. I'll go back to Romans 12.1 from this morning. I beseech you, therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. This is the way of assurance, to be assured, friends, that shows Jesus Christ is at work in you. Because when you are united to the life-giving Savior, as in John 15, 1 through 2, which, where Jesus says, I am the true vine, and my Father is the husbandman, every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, that it may bring forth more fruit. You see, if you are in Christ, you will bear fruit. And those who do not bear fruit, cannot have any assurance because he says the unfruitful person, he purges it. He purges it. He takes it away and he will cast it into the fire. He spurs them on in this text to see evidences, those things that accompany salvation so that they might have assurance. And what is so remarkable about this text is something I have never been able to get past. Really, And I think I've preached part of this text before to you. That he says that your works, which are done as the fruit of Christ's work in you, he will never forget. You know, one of the things that's a great inhibitor towards us doing works of service is we often ask, right, does that person even acknowledge what I have done for them? You've probably been discouraged in that way. I've done so much for this person and they just... Don't acknowledge it, and I don't want to serve them or anybody else anymore, and you are discouraged, aren't you? And that's a a tactic the devil and the flesh use to keep you from works of charity and love. But let me say, this will always be the case with men, friends. Men and women often forget what we do for them, and, and sad to say, you probably forget and don't acknowledge what others have done for you either. So don't think it's it's yourself that is always the one who's being wronged. You remember when Joseph asked the chief butler to repay his kindness, and he asked, But think on me, when it shall be well with thee, and show kindness, I pray thee, unto me, and make mention of me unto Pharaoh, and bring me out of this house. Did the butler remember him? No. Yet did not the chief butler remember Joseph, but forgot him. Genesis 40, verse 23. And as I said, we are often like the butler, and we don't think of what others have done for us, and that is sinful. But the Bible reminds you, friends, lest you are discouraged in good works, is that God is not unjust to forget what you have done. Verse 10 says, For God is not unrighteous to forget your work and labor of love, which ye have showed towards his name. See, this is a key to cultivating the fruits of salvation to gain assurance, is to remember that as you do good works towards others, as a labor of love towards his name, right? It's not even saying that uh, uh, predominantly the idea is that you are doing good works for your neighbor. Predominantly the idea is that you are doing good works, uh, a labor of love towards the name of Christ, an expression of love for Christ. Even if others that you labor for do not acknowledge it in this life, God will never forget. God will always remember. What did Nehemiah kept saying uh, in his book? Think upon me, my God, for good, according to all that I have done for this people. See, the people of God might forget, but God will never forget. Even the smallest works that you do out of love. 
You know, elders, you need to be encouraged in that as well. Because we have to do our work for God. And though it is often the case, and maybe you've experienced this, probably have, I'm sure, that oftentimes you may, you may spend and be spent for the people of God, and they will often not ever remember a single thing you have done for them. And all they will ever remember are the things that uh, you have not done for them. But God is not unjust to forget your work. God is not unrighteous. He notes everything that we do in his book of remembrance, elder or not. And the last day, you might even forget the things you have done in his name, but he will show you that he has never forgotten a single thing you have done for his name. This is another, and you think of this going back to our theme, this is another exceeding great and precious promise. And you are to believe it. And you are to allow that to spur you on to good works. Because it is a great discouragement when people don't remember what you have done for them. And uh, it is our tenor in the flesh to basically say, what have you done for me lately? But God never forgets. God is not unjust like that. You know, there's another promise associated with this promise that I just find astonishing and astounds the soul. You know, while God promises the believer that he will never forget their work and labor of love, what is the opposite promise that he has given to us in the gospel you can pair that promise with Hebrews 8.12, For I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and their sins and their iniquities will I remember no more. Isn't that beautiful? God is not unjust. Even our sinful works, though, they are done out of love for him and in his name. He says, I will never forget those, but your iniquities and your sins I will remember no more. Isn't that a wonderful, wonderful picture of the gospel? Oh, to be rooted simultaneously in these two promises, beloved, that he will not remember my sins and iniquities, but he will remember my work and labor of love towards his name. You need to write those promises down and not just write them down, but store them in your heart and how much greater your walk with the Lord will be. Believer, you need to see what a full assurance of hope you have if you were to be rooted in the promises of God in Jesus Christ. My sins and iniquities, no more to be remembered. But God, when he looks at me through Jesus Christ, he remembers every labor of love. What a wonderful thing it is to be seen through the eyes of Jesus Christ. And so you can persevere to the end through faith in the promises of God and with patience. Cultivate those things that accompany salvation, the fruit of it. Be diligent and not slothful to cultivate these things so that as you see fruit in your life that comes out of love for God, you would see the outworking of faith and the promises and through the evidences of it, the fruit of your of the Spirit in your regenerated heart, you can be infallibly assured you are no hypocrite and that you belong to Christ. Unbeliever, if you have... None of this. On what basis do you imagine you are going to heaven? I can say, I am going to heaven because God has promised me heaven in Jesus. And I believe it. So I have a sure hope that will never be disappointed. But your hope, whatever it is, is conjecture. What is your hope built on? Whose word is it built on? Your hope is just simply wishful thinking. No different than a child who imagines things in his mind and has an imaginary world that he plays in. That's what your hope is. Wishful thinking cannot bear the burden of your soul and it can never expunge your guilt before God. Here is a promise for you sinners. But to him that worketh not, but believeth on him that justifieth the ungodly, his faith is counted for righteousness. Romans 4, 5. Believe on him that justifies or saves the ungodly. And take this other promise today as well. Whoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. These are the grounds of our assurance. That I am a sinner. I am unjust. But God justifies the ungodly. And if I call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ, I will be saved. Lay hold of these promises by faith. For it is impossible for these promises to be false. Because God gave them in his word. Take them and you will have a sure anchor for your soul. You can go, live, and die in peace. As the Lord said this morning, go in peace because thy faith 
has saved thee? Well, one last question. What if I have no assurance of my salvation, Pastor? Am I not saved? No, we say that assurance does not belong to the essence of faith. It is not essential for you, believer, that you have assurance. You can have faith but not be assured, but you must seek to obtain it. In Mark 9, 23 to 24, Jesus said unto him, If thou canst believe, all things are possible to him that believeth. And straightway the father of the child cried out and said with tears, Lord, I believe, help thou mine unbelief. I believe, but there is unbelief still in the promise. There's mixture of faith and belief in me. Help my unbelief. He believed in Jesus, but his faith was not a full assurance. But his faith knew what to do in its weakness. He prayed to the Lord, give me assurance, and he sought out Jesus. So if you're diligent and you're, you're lacking in assurance, be diligent. Use the means of grace by faith, word, sacrament, and prayer. Dive into the word. Find the promises of God. Pray prayers rooted in the promises of God. Use the sacraments as signs and seals of the promises of God. And then the grace that is given to you, exercise that grace in your life by being fruitful and walking with the Lord, and the Spirit will give you a sense of your standing with God. And it might come in degrees, but you are to grow into a full assurance. As you grow in Christ, your assurance will grow until it is full assurance if you diligently seek Him. Believer, you can obtain a full assurance of your salvation. So pursue it. That is the truth of God's word tonight to the praise and glory of Jesus Christ. Amen. Please rise for prayer if able. O Lord God in heaven, truly what exceeding great and precious promises you have given us in the word of God. O we confess before you, Father, we don't. We don't go into the Word to find these great and precious promises. Often these promises are not even precious to us, but we just sort of take them or leave them. Help us, Father, be rooted in the promises of God. Help us to know the promises of God so that we would have a sure and steadfast hope, an anchor for the soul, knowing that you, O oh God, cannot lie. O oh, Father, give us the faith to believe and also, Father, give us the faith to believe all the promises of God are yea and amen in Christ. Help us exercise faith in the promises as we exercise faith in Christ. And Father, we thank you for the precious promises of the gospel. We don't thank you enough. We thank you that you have given us sinners precious promises to believe. Lord, many of us are saying tonight, Lord, I believe. Help thou mine unbelief. Would you help their unbelief, Lord? and give them a full assurance of their salvation, so that you, O oh God, would be praised from their hearts. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. Our final singing of praise as we respond to...